Um, so, uh, as you know, tonight is the, uh, the Oscars, um, which I just, I really stopped caring about. Um, uh, I, I think that what alienated me first was in 2000, of course, when um, The Matrix was not, not only did not receive Best Picture, but it was not even nominated. As far as I'm concerned, uh, really, the race was among all those pictures for Best Picture, really was second Best Picture nominee, because Matrix was clearly... The, the best picture uh, that was released in 1999. But then we're now 15 years on the anniversary of another great injustice when the first Lord of the Rings movie was beaten out. Anybody remember who beat out Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring? What? Uh, it's not what? It definitely was not episode one. Thanks be to God. No, that was, that was the same year as The Matrix. And it, yeah. It, episode one did get beaten out for a lot of the technical awards by Matrix, which was proper. Uh, but no, it was A Beautiful Mind, which is a fine movie. Jennifer Connelly got Best Supporting Actress, and she was, I thought, very good in that. Russell Crowe did a good job. But it was not the best picture released in 2002. Can I get a witness? Yeah. So um, what, what, that, what that meant then is that two years later, in 2004... Um, when, um, frankly, Mystic River should have gotten Best Picture, they had to give it to the third Lord of the Rings movie, sort of in, in recompense for the fact that they had failed to give it to the first one. And, you know, the, as a trilogy, the whole thing was pretty darn impressive. But as is usually the case with trilogies, the last movie is fairly disappointing, right? Like, um, any, any Star Wars fan will tell you that of the original trilogy... The most disappointing movie is Return of the Jedi, right? Um, in uh, Alicia and I, my younger daughter, have been wa- watching the Matrix movies in the last week or two, and and yesterday we watched the third Matrix movie, which just I mean, a lot of people trashed the second one, which I actually really liked. It had some great fight scenes in it, and the thing at the end with the architect I thought was interesting. But the third is just a mess. It, it's just trying to sew up together all this stuff that really did, kind of didn't make sense in the first place. It doesn't work, and I think one of the reasons that these third movies and these trilogies don't work very well is that we're bad at being God. Let me explain what I mean by that. So in, in the third movie of a trilogy, you have to wrap everything up, and usually you have to wrap everything up to, to move it to a point where it's going to be a sort of brighter future moving forward. Um, but we're, we're, good at, we're good at starting problems, Right? We're good at creating problems, and we're good at finding some like, initial solutions to them, but absolutely fixing everything and making it right, not our strong suit. And so there's something dissatisfying about these trilogies when they end. Even, even if the story, as Tolkien's original, was, is good, there's just something that, that leaves, you, leaves you feeling a little bit disappointed. And I do think it's because we're lousy at being God. It's a good thing that we're lousy at being God. It's important that we recognize we're lousy at being God because we do have this annoying habit of uh, trying to take his place. There's this irritating move that people make in theology all the time. And um, I, I, just, I, I often find myself having to, to sit on my hands lest I slap somebody when they will say something like, well... 
I can't believe in a God who would. Or the God I worship wouldn't. Like, well, look, if, if the one true God of the universe who has revealed himself in Jesus Christ did in fact do this, then basically you're saying you're going to choose an alternate. And inevitably, the alternate people choose looks a lot like themselves on a good day, right? You know, thankfully, the real God is way more impressive than that. But we have to take that fact seriously, which is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 13, he says, therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. This word fugate, free, shows up earlier in 1 Corinthians in chapter 6. Anybody remember what he's telling the Corinthians to flee from there? Another translator says, avoid it like the plague. Referring to, what's that? Yes, the porneia, sexual immorality. In, in, uh, in his letters to Timothy, Paul tells Timothy to flee from the lustful desires of youth and from uh, the love of money. Here he's saying flee from sexual immorality and flee from idolatry. These are things you absolutely need to stay away from and run away from as hard and as fast as you can. He says, I'm speaking to sensible people. This is one, I forget the name for the rhetorical technique, where you lie. Um, I think it's called lie. Um, But when he says, I'm speaking to sensible people, you may recall that the Corinthians have, in fact, not been making a lot of sense with many of the things that they've done and said. But here he is flattering them by saying, I'm speaking to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all share in the one bread. Paul, of course, here is referring to the Eucharist. In the next chapter, he's going to go into more detail on how the Corinthians, the church in Corinth, are absolutely screwing up the Eucharist in just about every possible way you could imagine, but right here he's pointing out that when we receive the Eucharist, when we take communion, as we will next week at at New Hope, that we are participating in the body of Christ. When we share together in the Eucharist, we are sharing in Christ. We're sharing in his body and in his blood. We're doing that all together as one body. The significance of this for the church and our relationships with each other we'll talk about next week as well. But here he's talking about this this picture of us coming together around the table and how that evokes this idea of coming together at the altar. In verse 18, consider Israel according to the flesh. Don't those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Obviously the answer is, well, yes. And uh, where do we get that? Well, we get that from Leviticus. Now, I'm sure you all have uh, your pages of Leviticus well-worn. Uh, some of you may have some of them who, that have fallen out because you've been reading them so intensely. If so, look on with your neighbor. But in, in Leviticus chapter 3, we read that when somebody brings a fellowship offering, right? So this is God's, God's regulations for worship to the, the nation of Israel. He says when you bring a fellowship offering, he's supposed to bring an animal from the herd without male or female, doesn't matter, presenting an animal without defect. Right? So this is the first principle of, of worship, is you bring the best that you have. You don't bring the worst that you have. You bring the best that you have. You bring the first of what God has blessed you with. And he's to lay his hand on the head of his offering and slaughter it at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Then Aaron's sons, the priests, 
shall sprinkle the blood against the altar on all sides. In the fellowship offering, he brings a sacrifice made to Yahweh by fire, and it talks about what you do with all the different parts. Then you get into the elements of Leviticus that are like a butcher's manual. But, but the idea is that when a person comes to make his offering, he comes to the altar, he lays his head on the animal that he is offering, and he slits its throat. And then he gives that to the priest who does the work of taking the animal apart, putting some parts of it on the altar to be burned up, putting other parts on the altar to be grilled to a nice medium rare for the priest and his family, and other parts of the fellowship offering, what happens to them? The person who has made the offering gets to eat them. In fact, he says you've got to eat it uh, day one and day two. After day three, it gets funky and you have to burn it all up. But, but the idea is that when you made an offering, some offerings you made and they were simply burned up entirely, some offerings you made, and, and only the priest got to eat part of them. But with these fellowship offerings, you, you brought an offering, and you and your family got to eat most of, of what, what, was, what was sacrificed, right? The idea there being, you are participating in this practice of worship. You're, you're not just a, an anonymous like person sitting way in the back while somebody up front does something. You are there participating actively in worship. We read in Deuteronomy in chapter, uh, chapter eight or 18, Deuteronomy 18, that, that when the priests uh, are, they, they don't, they're not given an allotment, they're not given land. The tribe of Levi was the one tribe that didn't get land. They were to live on the offerings made by the people, right? That's how the, the priests... Uh, eight is that they were given a portion of the offerings that were made. So what that means is that when we participate in the Eucharist, there's a sense in which it's not just that we're standing there while somebody else does something, but that we are together sharing in the participation in Christ's body and blood. The problem is if you're also sharing in other similar activities. We talked a few weeks ago, you remember when Canon Slater was here, he talked about uh, the, the issue of meat sacrificed to idols. The, in chapter 8, Paul goes on and on about the problem with meat sacrificed to idols. The, in, in Corinth, for the most part, if you wanted to buy meat, you were going to go to the, the, the temple. The, the butcher shop right next to the temple because that's where meat generally came from. You, you would, people would make their offerings in, in the service of whatever idol they were worshiping and then most of that uh, would, could, be, could be sold. And what Paul says in chapter 8, he says, well, don't worry, but we know an idol is nothing. It doesn't matter uh, you know, what kind of mumbo-jumbo somebody says over it. It's just a steak. But... It seems like something more than that is going on here. He says in verse 19, do I, do I mean that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No, uh, ontologically there's nothing, there's no thing there. But remember the sacrifices that pagans make, they offer to demons, not to God. And I don't want you to be participants 
with demons. You can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You can't have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. It seems that some people, the problem wasn't that they were simply buying meat at the market that had been sacrificed to idols. It seems like some of them may have actually been participating in these sacrifices. And whether it was because it was uh, a, a matter of, of, of joining in on a uh, for, for cultural reasons, maybe you, you were invited to a, a dinner and it all started at the, at the, at the temple and, and everybody would make the sacrifice together and then go and eat it. Uh, Paul says, well, no, you, you, can't, you can't do that. It's one thing to, to buy some meat. It's another thing to be a participant in the practice of, of this pagan worship. You can't do that. Are, you real, are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than He is? And here, Paul is, again, hearkening back to Torah, hearkening back to Deuteronomy. This is in chapter 32, and I'm, I'm going to read the whole thing because it's so solid. But this is, this is Moses' song. This is the, before Moses blesses the blesses the tribes after he's been told that it's going to be time's going to come that you're going to you're going to die he says this he says listen o heavens and i will speak hear o earth the words of my mouth let my teaching fall like rain and my words descend like dew like showers on new grass like abundant rain on tender plants i will proclaim the name of yahweh o Praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His works are perfect. And all his ways are just. He's a faithful God who does no wrong. Upright and just is he. Well, what about his people? Verse 5, they have acted corruptly toward him. To their shame, they're no longer his children but a warped and crooked generation. Is this the way you repay Yahweh, you foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father, your creator, who made you and formed you? Now again, Paul is speaking this message to Israel as they're preparing to enter into the promised land, knowing that part of their history was having to wander around for 40 years because they had failed to be faithful, knowing that part of the story involved them getting bored while they were waiting for Moses to come down from the mountain. And they made a cast idol and they worshipped it, as we talked about last week. Remember the days of old. Consider the generations long past. Ask your father and he'll tell you. Ask your elders. elders. They'll explain to you. When, when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided all mankind, he set up boundaries for the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. For Yahweh's portion is his people. Jacob is his allotted inheritance. In a desert land, he found him in a barren and howling waste. He shielded him and cared for him. He guarded him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young and spreads its wings to catch them and carries them on his pinions. Yahweh alone led him. No foreign god was with him. God's people were not being led or taken care of by any false god, any of these demons, any of these things that pagans worship. It was only the one true God 
He did that. He made Israel ride on the heights of the land. He fed him with the fruit of the field, nourished him with honey from the rock, with oil from the flinty crag, with curds and milk and herd and flock, he, with fattened lambs and goats, with choice rams of Bashan, with the finest kernels of wheat. You drank the foaming blood of the grape. God provided abundantly for his people. He rescued them out of slavery. He provided abundantly for them. And he provided for them in the wilderness. But this is also looking forward to the story of the way God's people will live when they enter the land. But Jeshurun, which is the, the upright one, Israel, grew fat and kicked. Filled with food, he became heavy and sleek. He abandoned the God who made him and rejected the rock, his Savior. That rock, Paul says, was Christ. They made him jealous with their foreign gods and angered him with their detestable idols. They sacrificed to demons, which are not God, gods they had not known, gods that had just recently appeared, gods your father did not fear. You deserted the rock to father you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. This is the story of the people's idolatry, people's unfaithfulness, people's abandonment of the worship of the one true God, that relationship that Joe was talking about in prayer where we respond to God. They threw all that away. Yahweh saw this and rejected them because he was angered by his sons and daughters. I'll hide my face from them, he said, and see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children who are unfaithful. They made me jealous by what is no God and angered me with their worthless idols. So I'll make them jealous by those who are not a people. I'll make them angry by a nation that has no understanding. This is the passage that Paul is quoting there in First Corinthians. He's alluding to in, in First Corinthians 10 when he says, are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we, we, we stronger? Do you really think you're stronger than God? Well, fire has been kindled by my wrath, one that burns to the realm of death below. It will devour the earth and its harvests and set afire the foundations of the mountains. I will heap calamities upon them and spend my arrows against them. I'll send wasting famine against them, consuming pestilence and deadly plague. I'll send against them the fangs of wild beasts, the venom of vipers that glide in the dust. In the street, the sword will make them childless, in their homes, terror will reign. Young men and young women will perish, infants and gray-haired men. I said I'd scatter them and blot out their memory from mankind. But I dreaded the taunt of the enemy, lest the adversary misunderstand and say, our hand is triumphant. Yahweh has not done all this. So, God's got a message of judgment. God's got a message of punishment for his people, but he also is aware that he's got a reputation. They're a nation without sense. There's no discernment in them. They don't even nominate the Matrix for best picture, let alone give it to us. If only they were wise and understand this and discern what their end will be. 
Really, how could one man chase a thousand or two put 10,000 to flight? These are the kinds of things that the story tells us happened when God's people were being attacked in the wilderness. How, how, could, how could you do that unless the rock had sold them, unless Yahweh had given them up? For the rock is not like our rock, as even our enemies can see. Their vine comes from the vine of Sodom and from the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are filled with poison. Their clusters with bitterness. Their wine is the venom of serpents, the deadly poison of cobras. Have I not kept this in reserve and sealed it in my vaults? It's mine to avenge. I will repay. Paul quotes that at the end of Galatians. In due time, their foot will slip. Their day of disaster is near and their doom rushes upon them. Yahweh will judge his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their strength is gone and no one is left, slave or free. He'll say, so now, where are their gods? Where's the rock? They took refuge in the gods who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings. Let them rise up to help you. Let let them give you shelter. You you think you're going to trust in one of these false gods? You think you're going to be able to rely on one of these idols? See what they are able to do for you. No. See now that I myself am He. There is no God besides me. I put to death and I bring to life. I am wounded and I will heal and no one can deliver out of my hand. I lift my hand to heaven and declare as surely as I live forever when I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand grasps it in judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and repay those who hate me. I'll make my arrows drunk with blood while my sword devours flesh, the blood of the slain and the captives, the heads of the enemy leaders. Is this the kind of God you want to worship? I don't care. This is God. This is a God who is just. God reveals himself as just. God himself reveals, God reveals himself as taking vengeance on his enemies. God reveals himself as protecting his people. God reveals himself as always pursuing what is good and right. And if you want to say, well, I couldn't worship a God who would punish somebody, like, well, you know, then I guess you're going to have to pick from one that's made up. Because this is what the one true God is like. I will make my arrows drunk with blood while my sword devours flesh. The blood of the slain and the captives, the heads of the enemy leaders. So rejoice, O nations, with his people. Or rejoice people and let all angels worship him. For he will avenge the blood of his servants. He'll take vengeance on his enemies and make atonement for his land and people. Now, if we leave it there, that actually kind of works, right? I mean, God, you know, not to be messed with. You wouldn't like him when he's angry. But the truth is, this is not where the story ends. This is not all that he has to say about this. Because as you recall, the blood that is shed 
ends up being the blood of his own son. Those who are his enemies are able by that blood to become his friends. Those who come against God as his enemies can surely be dealt with, and he certainly will execute justice. We don't have to worry about that, but if you're in line for getting justice executed on you, there's good news that God is happy to make his enemies his friends through the shed blood of his son, Jesus Christ. But you're never going to get there if your attitude is that God is manageable. You're never going to get there if your attitude is that you think you're stronger than God. You think you've got things figured out better than God has. You're never going to get there if you insist on God conforming to your standards rather than recognizing that God has standards of holiness that we can either conform to or not. We get that choice. We get free will, but, but there are consequences for it. I want to commend to you a discipline you may want to consider during Lent. Lent starts Wednesday. Some people give something up. Other people during Lent will engage in a, in a discipline that they will participate in. Rather than giving something up, they will add something. Sometimes it's a daily prayer. Sometimes it's reading Scripture. Sometimes it's washing the pastor's car. All kinds of things people can do. Just saying. But what I've experienced, and I've especially experienced over the last few years as I have been Anglicanized, as I've been brought into the Episcopal Church, as I've been made an Anglican priest, as I spent a year at an Anglican seminary, we spent a lot of time reading the Psalms. And I think if you spend much time at all reading the Psalms, it's hard to not take God seriously. Now, I know people who do, and it's st I still have a hard time understanding how if you're reading the Psalms all the time, you cannot take God seriously, but some people pull it off. But in a lot of ways, the, the Song of Moses in chapter 32 of Deuteronomy reads a lot like a lot of the Psalms. Remind us that God is God and we're not we've said many times, there are two name tags. There's the one that says God. There's the one that says not God. We get the one that says not God. Which means that we treat God like he's God. Which means we give him all glory and honor, all reverence, all worship, all praise. The last thing we do is try to create an alternative to him in our own image. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that we would be people who take you seriously. I pray we would be a community that worships you faithfully despite our unfaithfulness. I pray that we would be a people who glorify your name by the things we say, the things we sing things we teach and the things that we do. I pray that we would never 
make ourselves open to the charge of taking you lightly. Pray that when we receive your body and blood, that we would do so with reverence and with humility. Pray that we would be people of whom it is said that they are God's own. Let us never be people who would provoke you to jealousy. Give us the grace, Lord, to be humble. Amen.